G'day and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's a Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs as well as CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or CFRC podcast. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I would like to introduce you to Elizabeth Nelson, who is doing a PhD in geography under the supervision of Dr. Laura Cameron. Welcome to Grad Chat, Elizabeth. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, it's actually interesting because Elizabeth isn't actually physically with me today as she is at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. So how's it going in bonny old Scotland for you and why are you there and how long are you staying? Absolutely. Well, I've been here since September, so I've had a full academic year and I've been at the School of Geoscience working with Dr. Hayden Lorimer. And it's just been a really great opportunity to connect with a different department. I think especially coming out of the pandemic years and really missing these opportunities to connect um, through conferences, through travel, and just different departments at different universities getting the chance to experience different ways of thought. I've been at Queen's for six years and the Department of Geography and Planning is fantastic. Great colleagues there, but just really expanding myself as a geographer through through different different ways of learning. So what you're doing in, in Scotland, is that in relation to your current studies? Is it um, adding to your, your research that you're doing or is that just a, having an opportunity for a different experience? A little bit of both. So originally I was supposed to be here in my third year of my program, uh, but pandemic. Uh, with the pandemic, <laughs> of course, you know, things, things were slowed down. So originally I was using walking methodologies in my work and there's nobody in our department here at Queens that specializes in those kind of alternative methods. So sorry, um, what's a walking methodology? Yeah, so a walking methodology is basically a place-based interview. So instead of sitting across the table with someone, you go for a stroll and it can be very guided by the participant who gets to show you their neighborhood or a building and all the places that you're in really help them recollect different things. So That's nice. One of those those more alternative geographic methods that's mm-hmm. That's really fun and engaging. And so I was using those in my research, but when it came time to start writing them up and talking about how I used them, I said, you know what? I should probably go learn from someone who has used these. And right, so, right. Yeah, uh, Professor Lorimer has been an expert in these kind of embodied methodologies for, for some time. And so getting those different perspectives um, on my work. So you're kind of doing this, you're flipping this though, aren't you? Because you're learning about this now when you really need to learn it before you started your research. Absolutely. It was a little bit trial by fire when right. I first started doing these walking walking interviews and the pandemic was in its late stages by the time it was finally safe enough for me to be using the, right. these methods. And so I was figuring out what kind of microphones I needed and how to actually go about this because it's very different to be in a moving space with somebody when you're doing an interview. It just really changes the dynamic. So kind of, even though it wasn't helpful before beforehand, um, being able to reflect back on my practices and 
considering those experiences through different lenses, just through conversations was uh, very helpful. So have you been able to impart some of your own knowledge then to your experiences there in now in Edinburgh? I've gotten to collaborate in, with some really interesting people, um, just meeting people in the school. And there's there's lots of other great universities um, in the city. I, I mean, I got to do a conference with uh, Napier University. It was on the topic of inclusivity in the digital futures and with AI and what that kind of thing means. So quite different from my work that I've been been writing up in this writing right. stage, but at the same time, really growing, I think, my skills as a geographer and just my network in the academic community. So knowing what you know now, would you have changed some of the practices that you did fumble around figuring out as you were doing collecting your, your research? It's so funny you say that because as I've been writing, uh, my last manuscript and my thesis is actually about the mess of doing research. And right. so this idea that research doesn't go smoothly all the time. Research isn't always perfect, but it's about how we muddle through and we keep on keeping on and we try to be the most responsive we can be to our participants. And so looking back, I can nitpick and say, oh, well, I wish that I had done this so that I didn't lose that five minutes of cool recording because I turned the mic off too soon or right, right. Oh, I didn't think about how it would be to walk beside somebody on a sidewalk in a busy area and where I place my body in this space. So there's lots of little things that I think I would change if I did this method in the future again. But ultimately, I think I still really muddled through and got some really interesting experiences out of that. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. So I guess we should actually let people know what you're doing. <laughs> so we kind of sort of went around about. So and everyone, it is very exciting what Elizabeth is doing. So um, you, I've also been I've been looking at your website. And it seems that your focus is about how we see things, how we see ourselves and places. And you kind of talked about that way of walking along with someone in a particular place, memories that we can have in those places, how inclusive and safe are these spaces and how we interact with each other within communities. And I've also saw that some of your reports and publications as well as your teaching and presenting topics. So what made you want to look at places and people in this way? Absolutely. So I started off in my master's as I would have called myself at the time, like a memory scholar. I was right. studying Indigenous heritage in Kingston. My master's was about settler ignorance and colonial memory in Kingston. And so I was looking at heritage sites and different forms of public memory and the way that Indigenous representations were very absent and excluded because of the way municipal heritage practice is just a very colonial hegemonic structure. Right. right. But I came out of that having all of these really interesting conversations and realizing, okay, it's not just Indigenous groups and collectives that are experiencing this kind of exclusion in the city. So just as they were saying, hey, it's really hard to find spaces for our activities and man, we need a kitchen and it's hard to find a place that has a kitchen. I reflected on that and I was like, it's definitely other non-hegemonic groups too. So mm -hmm. when I say hegemonic, I'm referring really broadly to just anybody who is othered by the colonial heteronormative 
typically white municipal practice that happens in Canada. And, and of course, so, Kingston was a right place for you to do that. Absolutely. And it was a very timely moment for Kingston and the transitions that were going on with public memory in the city at the time. Right. And so in my PhD, I was like, well, I want to expand this. I now have four years instead of two. What can I do <laughs> to really tackle these questions of how can we make cities more inclusive to a broad array of diversity and just really digging into those experiences. So while I set out for this project to be about public memory, what I did was listen to the participants who said, yeah, it is what we're doing does relate to memory. It is about our culture and our heritage and our ways of being in the city. But also we're actually just really struggling on a very basic level of survival we are in precarity. We can't find spaces to do our activities. Our community is struggling. We feel really under-supported. And so slowly my work became a little bit less about public memory. And just in response to what the research was calling for, I said, well, how can I help these communities with their current needs? So it was a little bit more urban development, community studies focused. And that's how I've landed in that's this region. landed there. I mean, and I should mention to everyone, if you want to read some of Elizabeth's reports, both master's and PhD and other reports, just she's got a website and we can get that out to everyone so that they, they know where to go and have a look. So your current project then is titled Designing Intercultural Cities community organizations and care kind of touched on it It's kind of led into sort of given a bit of background of how you got to this point but can you give us a bit of a an overview of your project before we go into more in more depth with your questions yeah absolutely so basically I set out with the intention of understanding very broadly the experiences of community organizations in Kingston, Ottawa, and Cornwall. So those are three cities of different sizes, different contexts, and I just wanted to see what was generalizable across the experiences of these collectives. Right. And so when I refer to a community organization, I'm referring to these kind of collectives that are formed around shared goals or a shared identity. So I've made this a really broad definition so that I'm not just looking at ethnocultural communities, but I'm also looking at seniors groups or queer collectives, um, right, just right. different markers of difference and othering and how these communities kind of rally together. And so I set out and I managed to contact and interview 44 leaders of these community organizations. That's right. So and it this was, is all during the pandemic, right? It was. So <laughs> <laughs> I did contact 100, I want to say it was 180 organizations. And by the time that kind of the collection period had ended for me, some of the people that I was talking to at the beginning, their, their organization had gone defunct just because they had lost their space or their funding or their members right. were scattered to the wind. And right. so... I'm really, I really quite treasure that I managed to talk to, to 44. And I think yes. the fact that 44 folks were willing to talk with me, even when they were experiencing all of the challenges of the pandemic is just really a sign that this is an important topic to them. And so when I had these conversations, they, it was partly written surveys, it was partly phone surveys. And I was very broadly saying, tell me about your experiences. What are your challenges? What's your relationship like with your municipality? And also tell me about your hopes and dreams for the future of your community. Do you feel supported? And, and, and if not, why? So when you say, what do you feel about your future for your community? Are you also extending that? What do you feel about your future of community within the larger community? 
within the municipality. Yeah, so not only how would you like your small collective to continue operating, but also what would you like the future of your relationships with others in the city to be? What's your relationship like with settler Canadians, with municipal representatives? Um, So kind of, yeah, these multiple scales of of connection and just wanting to understand how they wanted to connect and what was preventing them in their operations from functioning fully. So you kind of touched on this, and I also read it in your report, that you talk about social, cultural, and economic impacts that shape these communities. So what do you mean by that in each of the three communities you research? Because as you alluded to, three different sizes, because Ottawa is the bigger one, and I guess Kingston is the medium-sized community, and Cornwall is is the smallest. So what do you mean by that? So interestingly, even though I set out and looked at three very different cities, uh, I assumed that when I talked to them, the smaller cities would say that they had less support and the larger cities would say, no, there's more support available. Same with funding, same with spaces. I thought there would be some sort of scalar correlation. <laughs> it turns out that there wasn't. And so that was one of my most interesting findings is that no matter how much availability of support services was in the city for them, they were still feeling under-supported and under-recognized by their municipalities. So that's kind of when I began to realize that what these organizations were coping with wasn't actual capacity issues within the municipality, but it was very much related to the structural oppression that functions within Ontario cities that just doesn't recognize and under supports these collectives. I find that fascinating that, that you said that because you're right. To be honest, I would have thought some of the smaller cities would have a bigger sense of community groups to bring people together um, I always think about, you know, not necessarily the bush dancers, but little festivals that bring different people in. But I mean, that's just one place. And like you said, some of these community groups, it's not just about their ethnic origins and showcasing that to the rest of the, the city. But it's it's more it's more than that. So can you describe some of the main challenges the community organizations you study face and how they manage to positively impact urban life and community well-being because that's that's the crux of it all right we, we get new immigrants coming into a city and we want to find ways to get them feel first of all feel welcome then included um, be able to find their little niche to fit within the community both you know a smaller niche as well as the larger community so what what are some of those main challenges Yeah, so I think I'll answer your question in two parts. First, I'll talk about um, the benefit of these these collectives to their cities, and then I'll get into the challenges. Um, So I think to start off, if people reflect on their hometown or their city they're currently living in, it would be very difficult to picture a lively city um, without the work of these community organizations. So we go about our day-to-day lives and we attend food festivals, or we see posters for celebrations and performances, we're encountering diversity in our everyday lives in public places. And this is in a huge part because of the activities of these groups. Right. And then behind the scenes, what these collectives are doing is providing really important caring labor for their communities. And these are people that are very often underserviced. So yes, there may be public programs and public services that deal with things like childcare or food insecurity or community integration, even public health, but these aren't suitable for all people and all experiences. So 
particularly for non-hegemonic people and those who are defined as other. For those other groups, public services may not be suitable or very welcoming. So what they're doing is providing culturally relevant care. And it means that these groups can find a community and a sense of belonging. So really addressing their intangible needs in their lives alongside their very real tangible needs. So I actually have a little list that I I love to, to read out and it's some of the care activities that these organizations do. So meal programs, parenting workshops, fresh food boxes, technology training for seniors, business mentorship, housing assistance, translation services. I could go on and on about all of the really diverse things that you wouldn't expect within the mandates of these groups that they're doing. Now, the benefit is clear, but to address the second part of your question, there are definitely challenges that they're facing. And so financially, these groups are so precariously funded. They're often relying on grants, but granting systems in Canadian municipalities are often very focused on heritage or the arts. So all of these care activities that fall outside of this definition kind of can be really hard to access funding for. So you might have a group who gets funding for a festival or like a a food celebration, but then their seniors meetup group where they're providing weekly meals to seniors in a church basement goes unfunded. And it's just kind of part of this broader issue in municipalities where the fun stuff, the perhaps tokenistic inclusion is funded, but the actual basic needs of these groups aren't really valued. The other huge issue with, finances is that grants are super hard to apply for i mean grants do easy i mean they have all that jargon in there and you go just get let me just say what i need and why absolutely (laughs) and that was exactly the sentiment expressed to me by some of my participants if english is not your first language if you Mm -hmm. haven't had post-secondary education if you simply don't have the time to write a 25 page document with all your financial records which these small groups who are just trying to give coffee to seniors might not be able to do. And they're all, um, and they're all majority of them are volunteer based. So they're you know, relying on the good nature of these people, aren't they? So that actually gets me into my, my other big, big challenge that was identified in the research, which is what I've called operational issues. So these groups are mostly volunteer run and I've kind of defined these champion individuals as the leaders of these groups. And these are the folks who are taking on all of the greatest organizational burden and very often the financial burden. And it all stems from a place of deep care. But when yes. it comes to mental health and their their sense of hope for their community, they're very burnt out. They're very worried about what's going to happen if they don't continue taking on these, these care roles. And they're definitely in a little bit of a crisis. Some of these communities trying to figure out what is next. Um, just very low capacity all around. Well, I, I remember reading one. It was an 81-year-old woman who is hoping someone will take over the presidentship of that particular group because she wants to start. I mean, she's 81. She needs time to – I mean, she should be able to enjoy being part of the group, not always organizing, but there's no one to take over, which means, as she said, if no one takes it over, this this group is going to fall apart. Absolutely. And, and, and that, so that means there's a group there that's missing out on something. Very much. And so it's not just these concerns about 
them themselves, but it's the longevity of the community. And mm. especially for diaspora communities who are worried about their children being able to connect with their cultural communities, there's this worry of, well, what's going to happen when the elders are no longer able to sustain this? So definitely one of one of the biggest findings. Um, and finally, like the third, the third main issue these groups are facing are very geographically, um, the spatialist issues of where do they operate? Um, often publicly available spaces are super expensive. Yeah. Um, they may not be accessible or in the right part of town for where the main group of their community is living. Right. Um, so we can see very downtown concentrated areas, whereas you may have a lot of folks living in suburbia, not great public transit. It just, it just might not work. Um, or say you have a group that needs to do smudging. Well, then you need a public building that has an HVAC system. And right. so we can think of accessibility ramps, kitchen spaces, just all sorts of needs that might not be well serviced by most public spaces. And these are also precarious spaces. You're competing with all the other groups in a city to book them. And something so central to developing community is being able to say, we're going to be here every Wednesday at two o'clock. Right. And if you can't tell your community that you're going to be there every week at two o'clock, well, what does that do? Well, yeah. And, and so actually next week I'm going to be at this building and the week after that, I'm going to be at that building. Exactly. And there, yes, you've, and then you've, you lose people. It's just space is so central to the ways communities function and particularly doing this research in a pandemic and seeing folks who they already had precarity in accessing mm -hmm. their spaces, but now it's even worse because there's more rules and there's smaller limits on who can be in a space. And some of the public spaces were gentrified, turned private. There's just so many layers of, of right. racial issues that are, are facing these folks. And it also connects to the financial issues as well. It's, it's interesting, just on a bit of a side part is that I know when I was living in New Zealand, you know, the, the various uh, communities or cities within the North and South Island of New Zealand, most of them would have for the Māori culture, the marais, which are like the meeting houses. Mm -hmm. And everyone knew that was where they could come. And it was there all the time. And, and that goes back, not just in, in the Maori culture and things, but in other cultures, there was always a meeting place in the city or, or town that you were in. And everyone knew that was the place they could congregate to meet each other and get connections and, and hold activities and whatever. We kind of lost that, haven't we, in, in today's urban environment? Definitely. I think especially with the loss of... Um, religion is no longer a largely bonding thing for many people, particularly in non-rural communities. And so we are forming collective identity groups based around different markers. And I think there's, I think in a way that's really nice, but this siloing also means that there is no key core or collective group that has clear support or Mm -hmm. who is clearly seen as a caring entity. And because it's falling to all these kind of separate groups, separate leaders that come and go of different scales, you can understand why it's almost difficult in a way for municipal recognition of these many diverse bodies. But at the same time, they're really filling in the gaps that have been left by this sense of collective gathering. And I think as a complete tangent, I think the, the digital age has also impacted that because online communities are absolutely a wonderful place for people to connect. Um, and some, that was mentioned by some of my participants, but predominantly 
they said, we can't wait to get back in person. person. We've been doing online things, but it's just not the same. The other thing about talking about the digital, not everyone has access to a computer or even a mobile phone. Uh, So so there's always these assumptions that people have because we're in a technology age that everyone has the technology. I know I'm, I'm always scared at using technology. I have to use it, but I'm always scared I'm going to press the wrong button. Absolutely. One of the most interesting groups I spoke with was a seniors group in Canada and Ottawa, who in the pandemic, one of their first tasks was getting iPads to these seniors so that they could still call their family and trying to train them through the patio doors of their their backyards on on how to do this in such a moment of crisis. And that was never going to happen through a publicly funded system. But this small grassroots collective was able to see the need so that these seniors weren't lonely and someone was still able to check in on them. And I think that's just such a great example of the response of resilience of these groups. Which is which is fantastic. So you're doing a a thesis, right? You're doing a PhD, which we all know there are some variances, but a lot of it means a lot of writing at the end. And then you defense, which is two to 400 pages, depending on what's required within your discipline. But you've also written these reports for the general population to read, like me and like the municipalities and the various people are around. What made you want to write those shorter reports? One is 20 pages, which now you're going to make into a 200-page dissertation. Why was it so important for you to make this more general report, which after reading it, makes total sense, easy to read, you, you, you get to the punchlines, you know exactly what you're trying to do and what you're trying to accomplish. What made you want to do that? Yeah, so I think exactly what you've just said. You read the report and in 20 pages you were able to understand the punchline of my research. It's kind of like an executive summary. Exactly. In, in better terms, terminology. <laughs> so for me... I I would call myself a critical praxis-oriented researcher. And so that means I'm really interested in doing work that is going to benefit the communities I work with and that isn't just going to be extractive. I think there was no point for me when I looked at everything I had gathered, there would be no point to lock it away behind an academic journal paywall and never have it benefit the lived on the ground realities of these communities. So it just felt like doing responsible research to me. If I was hearing from the communities I was working with that they wanted municipalities to understand them and their experiences, and they had a whole host of potential solutions for the municipalities of, well, hey, this is how you could engage differently with us. And it was in my power as a researcher to kind of package that up and send that to municipalities in some really plain language and say, hey, you might not have realized that this is the experiences that are ongoing. Here are some strategies you can use to potentially engage differently. And so, yeah, creating a plain language report was, for me, just part of being a responsible researcher. And, and I think what I like, too, in your, in your report is that you, you did give recommendations. Now, here, here's an issue that you, these community groups have brought forward. Here's a potential solution. And I think that is really important that that is there. But... Has that report gone to these municipalities for them to read? 
It has um, very recently, only as of like a week ago. So I'm still receiving responses back. Are you um, getting responses? So that's a good thing. I am. I hope. Well, <laughs> part of the research that was also important to me was that I wanted to get a municipal perspective to understand that framing of why things are as they are in these cities. And so oh, I did interviews with eight folks that had experience working in municipal planning or heritage support services of some sort. And really seeing that they also as individuals predominantly wanted to create equitable, diverse and inclusive cities. Right. But the limiting factor once again is this hegemonic municipal structure that doesn't want to support non-hegemonic folks. And so really looking at the ways that you can provide a tool to individual municipal workers and maybe raise their capacity in their roles to challenge the systems they work in. I don't want to at all demonize individuals working in municipalities, but I want to point to the structures structure. that are forming what constrains them as well. So yeah, I think having a little bit of positive feedback now that the report's gone out is good assurance that I, I chose a good format for this work. It's also, may, uh, I mean, the hard part, you can have some, like you said, some great people within the structure who think, you know, you're absolutely right. Now we've got a report that we can do it, but it's still getting everyone else who makes the decisions to get on board, which absolutely. is not an easy thing to do because everyone usually in those sorts of positions um, have their own agendas. Yes, and I actually had such an interesting conversation with um, Bernadette Clement. She's a, a senator from Cornwall. She was the previous mayor. And I use her words in the conclusion of my dissertation, actually, because she's reflecting on the way that it is so structural. She was describing a scenario where she was going off for a municipal conference and that so many people in that room were white, older men. And how can we possibly begin to transform these systems if the predominant big thought behind creating the structures is at its core hegemonic? And so I think we are entering a time of transition and I'm hopeful of positive change within Canadian municipalities, but it very much is structural and it can be difficult to, to resist those systems from within and from outside. Yeah, I mean, I've I've noticed a difference in Kingston from when I first arrived 16 years ago, and I'd like to think we're moving in the right direction, which is Absolutely. good. So um, we just got to keep going on that, and reports like yours is going to be really, really important. Before we finish, there is one more thing I would really like to ask you about. Another report that you put here is called the Zion Project, and, and it was called I'll Be Here. Can you explain what is a what is a zine? And again, why did you want to use this as part of your research? Yeah, so this was a surprise to me too. I didn't set out in, in my research with the goal of making a zine. I kind of fell oh, zine, into sorry. it. Oh, zine, sorry. I also called a design for the first month and then was... Okay. <laughs> Um, so forgiven. <laughs> yeah, so a zine is a grassroots publication traditionally, and it's usually a very small independent publication, often used by artists and grassroots activist collectives. And they're very graphical, they're quite quite informal in nature, and they're kind of a counter resistance to knowledge production. And so I had a conversation repeatedly with different 
participants. And then one specifically with a woman called Melissa from the Ottawa Japanese Community Association. And she was saying and really reflecting back so many of the stories that had been shared to me that community organizations also were unaware of one another. It wasn't just their relationship with their municipality that they wanted to really grow um, and make more positive, but they also were, felt very alone in their struggles. And so as we had this conversation, we started to talk about what it would look like to bring these groups together. And of course, with the pandemic and with the Zoom fatigue and with financial limitations as a PhD student, there was only so much I could do to help these collectives come together. And so instead of an in-person or an online gathering or a conference style, we thought about, oh, well, what about a publication? So from that, I, I went off and I thought about it and I remembered that zines existed. And so I, I, I compiled a bunch of quotes from participants um, in this publication. And then I reached out to local artists from those communities and I asked what? them to illustrate those stories. And so something, again, that when I think about the forms of academic writing and some of my resistance to kind of this ivory tower of inaccessible research knowledge, um, it's, it's format and it's making participants actual voices and stories heard. Mm -hmm. So often we take a, a quick quote and we stick it in our research, but you're really losing the person or the fullness of the story. Right. And I had collected so many stories that I couldn't possibly include in a dissertation in a way that didn't feel extractive. So part of this project was returning that those stories in their fullness to the communities and also helping them see along those lines of shared experience. So in the zine, if you if you read through, you start to see these emergent themes and these similarities and and some moments of difference and disagreement as well. But you're you're really getting to know some of these community organizations and their struggles. And so I've had a really positive response. It was amazing to work with the artists on this project who were also excited. They kind of verified my findings in a way because they were saying yes I do see this happening in my community and I'd be really right. happy to illustrate this and so it results is a pretty I think cool format um, it is a cool format <laughs> and, and I think what I like about it I mean in, even your other report even though it was um, made more accessible to the general public what's nice about the zine project is that you're absolutely, anyone can, when they're going through it, can say, that's the voice of this group and that's the voice of this group, et cetera. Because often we lose that. I mean, and one of the things we always talk about, we've got to hear from the people that have got to hear their own voice. They need to be allowed to share their voice for, for change. Absolutely. Because there's no point all the big wigs going, well, yeah, let's just listen to them and it's just tokenism listening. We need to see it. Yeah. And you've, you've managed to do that. I'm, I'm glad you think so. And if, if you don't mind me leaving off with one little story, I think when you talk about tokenism, I have a great example from the zine. When I was speaking with Wenjin Ho, who runs some Chinese seniors groups in Ottawa, I say some, but there's actually a very large <laughs> number of them. <laughs> they wanted to do a community garden project. And so they went off and they applied for funding from the city. But the city refused to let them do it as a neighborhood project in the backyards where the seniors lived. They couldn't get public funding for that. So the city found a place that was under a bunch of hydro lines. <laughs> and she started to explain the issue to me. 
most Chinese seniors in Canada don't have a car. They quite simply couldn't get there. And the garden wasn't on public transit lines. And so she describes how the city spent, I think it was 25K just to put a faucet in. And then came back to the seniors group and said, well, hey, can you fundraise the rest? And of course, the group didn't have the the time or capacity to fundraise. So she said, no, like, I'm sorry, we, we simply can't. And then the city responded that if they gave up, they would never receive any funding again. And so she kind of threw her hands up in the air. And at the end, they scrambled to find funding from other other places. And volunteers built the raised beds. And there is a garden there now. But But they can't use it. Don't use it. (laughs) They still prefer their backyards. And that was the original intent of the project. And so I think thinking about what a shame that is. Yes. In that story, just really looking at well, we do need to listen to these groups. They have the solutions. They have the strategies. And municipalities need to really actively listen to their needs. And yeah, that was the thing. They weren't listening. They go, oh, we want to go. Yeah, well, that can go anywhere. But they didn't think about the repercussions. As you said, they couldn't even reach it. Where that 25000 to put in a water line could have been used without extra funding within their own area. Absolutely. And just really not addressing capacity, not addressing local needs. And I think that's not to be a geographer, but I think that's the benefit of local place-based solutions is if we can source our strategies from the smallest level, typically they are going to have the greatest benefit. And community organizations are such an asset for for that that knowledge. Well, that's brilliant. So if anyone wants to read both those reports from Elizabeth, both her, her general one and the zine project, go to elizabethnelson.ca. That's a, an easy one. No, not even a dot in the middle, just elizabethnelson.ca. And you'll have an opportunity to have a look at that. It's, it's very easy reading, but um, fascinating reading at the same time. So Elizabeth, I do thank you for coming on the show all the way from Scotland. I know it's a little bit later there, but uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about your project, which I think a lot of people would be very interested in hearing. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about. So I was happy to share. (laughs) Well, if we don't share it, then no one knows all the great work that has been getting done. So I'm glad you're happy to do that. So thank you. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or CFRC Podcast. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.